This is David Moyes. This is Yapstam. This is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Jurgen Klopp, and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jurgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Hello again, everybody who listens to the big interview. We're back with you, bringing Danny Murphy. Across these more than 130 interviews, seven years, there's obviously a wide variety of guests, different ages, different parts of this profession, occasionally a comedian, an actor, but also lots of different reactions. There are some people I've known very well, others in the minority who I'm meeting for the first time, but there's a really wide range of of what they think it's going to be like. There are some who know me well and are ready for the eccentricities. There are others who you can watch their expression changing as the questions develop and then them hitting second or third gear 15 minutes in. Michael Carrick was one of those. He definitely thought it was going to be a standard experience to begin with and then, I'm happy to say, found that it wasn't. And there are others who are simply really good showmen. Harry Redknapp was one. He was watching the racing, shouting at his dog and reeling out brilliant, brilliant anecdotes. And I'm also struck, as I tell you this, by the very first interview, which was with Gary Neville, who yelled across the floor at Sky Sports, um, this is just a five-minute thing, is it, Graham? I said, no, Gary, it's not. And as we sat down, he was busy in his mind, he was other things going on, and we were in a sound booth, and immediately we started to talk about Richie Benno, his death, his influence on cricket commentary, Gary was locked in and I had all his attention. That's a lovely feeling when that happens because you know that you, the listener, ultimately will get the benefit. With Danny, he was on match form, not only from the first minute of the interview, but from breakfast time when he sat down with my producer, Martin, and I at his excellent, um, very attractive, very friendly golf club in Surrey. Let's say thank you to their overnight staff who were absolutely excellent. In part one of this interview, we're going to talk about his childhood love affair with Liverpool and something that we do every now and again. Um, it was very interesting when we used this question with Tim Sherwood who I think found a rolled up bundle of used um, tenors and fifties, a sort of 500 quid on the ground behind the goal at um, Highbury when he went there first. Danny's experience for his very first trip at Anfield was different, but I think it, I think it'll resonate with everybody who can recall their debut at the club they've grown to love. Obviously, with uh, Danny, we can go on to talk about making his debut at Anfield, and then we detail the last game he played for Liverpool at Anfield, his emotions on returning a couple of times as an opposition player, the first time he came back, the last time, although he didn't know it, the last time he played at Anfield, winning, as it happens, for the opposition. Now, 
Gerard Ouye hasn't appeared often in this series of big interviews, but Danny breaks down the seismic influence that the Frenchman had on his life and career. And we talk about England's Michel Platini. Finally, a big welcome to some new socios who've joined us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share with everybody, tell everybody to listen to it. Um, and if you want to join us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, you'd be very, very welcome. This episode goes out to an old friend, Aaron Duckling, Patrick Durkin, Ryan McMillan, Danny McFellum, and Gavin Skeen. I also want to say hello to a new friend and listener, Mark Lafferty, a true dandy at Prestwick Airport. Met him last Saturday and he's a cracker. You're with The Big Interview. This is part one of Danny Murphy. The scene is something a little bit similar to Goldfinger, where <laughs> Bond takes Goldfinger for a game of... I think it's Sunningdale, I, I, at any rate. It's not far. D- Danny Murphy, you... <clears throat> Your neighbouring golf course is kind of chipper. And um, my only regret is that you can't take us out after this interview and show <laughs> me how to chip and putt. Because you're down to six, six what, six two? Six point seven now. Have, having not played until you were, <clears throat> what, mid-thirties? Yeah, I was engrossed in football. It's all I had, all I wanted. Golf, I used to think, was for the toffs, rich kids. It is. It is. Uh, it's changed a bit. But yeah, I didn't play properly till mid-30s and actually on a serious note with golf for a period in my life it gave me tremendous focus Mm. it gave me something else Mm. that um, helped delay my falling off a cliff but that's another story but golf is something now that I I love the irony is is that football was a natural talent for me Mm -hmm. it was a gift Mm-hmm. I didn't work on it. I, I trained every day. Yeah. I loved playing. But something I saw it was there. I could hit all the shots. I could hit all the passes outside of a foot into drill it, soft, precise, whatever. You know, I could see the pictures. With golf, none of that. <laughs> Process. Still ball, rhythm. Where's the club going? Where's the club face? Where's your body aligned to all it? It's complete opposite of football. Yeah, I'm not disputing this, but before we were taping and before you took lessons and got down to six and four, how, how long did it take you in your mid-30s to get down to about 12? It took me about a year. I started on 18 and I, I got down yes. to about 12. And about that's horrifying eight. for almost everybody listening. Yeah, but people who love golf know that that's the easy bit, the 18 to 12. <laughs> it is. It is if you've got time. Comparatively. Comparatively, yeah. It, it wasn't that difficult because that, for me... That was just about some good guidance and some effort. The next bit was the tip. You're joining a group because this, this series is, is quite extended. We've had a marvellous golf story from Stylian Petrov, who, who when guy. he was young, brilliant guy, but learned his English in working in a burger van in Glasgow while a Celtic player. Wow. Decided that was the way to learn his English. And when we started talking, he talked about his time in the, in the Bulgarian army, where he, he was taught to strip a gun down and back in 30 seconds or and he said that that helped him a lot that focus helped him a lot in his precision with his golfing we talked down in pool to Harry Redknapp who 
<laughs> got a sore one. Thought he'd be a nice neighbour, take Suey out for a game of golf. Mm. Pumped him, thrashed him. So he went away, went quiet for six weeks, came back, <laughs> had taken ten shots off, and Gordon Harry wiped the course with him. Just because you guys... Ultra competitive yeah, to start that, with. that's what it is. But also, there must be an equation between how you've trained your physique and then if you can ally that to, to tempo and concentration, there's a decent chance that a footballer is going to be able to make a transition to playing golf, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities in that respect, but I, I, I think the, the competitive edge is, is the bit that the lads I know love. You know, it doesn't really matter if you're technically that good as long as you can get it round. But if you're competing and you're able to, comp- you know, win a game, whether it be by hook or by crook, and it's not all about betting and winning a few quid against the lads. It's, you know, here, for example, you've got club championships, you've got pairs, you've got, there's trophies to win, there's names on the board downstairs. Mine's on there, actually. Um, <laughs> and that was, that was a set of... This isn't a setup. I didn't know that. I, this has been very fortuitous yeah. that we've got a club champion there. Since, well, no, not club champion. It was a pairs one I won. But the, the, the competitive edge, if you lose, you've got to have something. When you stop playing football, you, you're taking away the biggest part of your life, but you don't know it. You, don't, you know it's, you're going to stop, but you don't know how it's going to affect you. It's a horrendous transition. Um, I, find it, I find it bizarre sometimes. I do listen to some footballers say how seamless it is and how they're fine with it, but I just kind of think it's not hitting yet. Mm-hmm. Most lads I know have a, have a spell where they, they struggle with it because of how important it was in your life. And the other thing with football, of course, is that it's not just your professional life. It's actually something you've done religiously since, well, me, seven, six, seven. So you're talking 30 years of your life, really. It's, it's ingrained, and it, when, you, when it's stripped away, it, it's leaving you a part of your identity. Yeah, well, fo- what football does... So when my father died, when I was playing... When I had a baby really young and split up from his mom at 20 years old, all those traumas you go through are, I say this flippant, a little bit flippantly, minimalised mm-hmm. compared to what they would be mm-hmm. if you didn't have the football. Mm-hmm. Even losing my dad, massive thing in my life. But I wanted to get back playing because I knew that was my happy place and I knew he'd want me to. Football, 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 football. So it suppresses any problems, mm-hmm. anything at all. It did for me, mm-hmm. and I think it does for a lot of footballers. And what happens when you stop playing is, of course, you still have normal, you have problems and traumatic experiences. Things happen in life, but you don't have the football to rescue you. That's the problem. I think people <clears throat> now, generally, certainly, our, our listenership would, would easily say, well, part of the conversation is, camaraderie or the slagging or the humour or just the drills, the discipline, the having a time when you must get out of your bed and I, I watch at the moment uh, Dean Windus and Mark Crossley say like make your bed because that's the start of a day rather than giving up and something. Start. There's the endorphins, there's the adrenaline but I don't think part of the com- conversation much about that transition and losing something is about losing competing. It is and, but the other thing is and this is, this is something people aren't that open to, I believe, is accepting that you're you're losing the adoration, which is mm-hmm. affecting your ego. <laughs> so the insecurities come <laughs> because your ego. Most most of us men have big egos, 
and you want to be appreciated and loved and so you want to be told you're fantastic you're amazing you're useful we need you i'm loving these words even though they're not meant for me but, so it, it, I, but they are and, and not many lads go do you know what my ego's dented because yeah. not, people aren't loving me the same we're not ta- i mean i'm a lot older than you but we're not taught to talk like that no about saying my ego's dented because th- that's admitting a weakness which we're not supposed but you, did, you learn these things do. you know i i've i've openly taught i i got professional help when i had a bad spell and you know, you learn from other people who are experts in fields you're not, and you open your mind. If you don't open your mind, you are... How did that help help you? It's, I mean, specifically. <coughs> um, I don't mean to pry into your life specifically, but there'll be people here outside the world of football who need help, who are considering help. How does the, how does the help help you? The biggest part of getting help is, is accepting you've got a problem. Once you share, it's, it's, it's the simple things you're told by your mum and dad all your life and it was growing up, you know, problem shared is a problem halved. Well, it's better than that. Yeah. You know, opening up to people, losing that ego of thinking you're a rock yeah. Yeah. and you can fix everything is amazing. It's actually, it, it's humbling how much people want to help wow. and how little they judge. Oh my, you know, when people, my, my fear was, oh, you're not coping, you've... You've had bad finance, you've lost some finances, you've dabbled in drugs and drink and gambling. You, you, you feel like you're going to be judged. You feel like you're going to be thought less of by those who even love you, never mind people who don't. Um, and then as soon as you open up and get some help, that in itself is, a, is, is great. It makes you, it, it you realise that you're not on your own because generally what happens when, you, when you're in a bad place, I think, is you isolate yourself a lot from people who yes. care about you. yes. Um, but the, the because of shame, I think most of shame. It. Yeah, it's a great word. I think I think the other thing when you get some professional help, what it does is it allows you to put the pieces together of where things might have gone wrong for you. Because the perception of most people, and I, I say most because I think that's true. If you've earned good money and had fame by doing anything, but especially football, because mm-hmm. a lot of people want to be footballers, mm-hmm. then you should never have a problem in your life. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I have to be perfectly honest, I was one of those people when I was a bit younger. Mm-hmm. I used to think, how can, what? Mm-hmm. How the hell could you have any mental health issues or feel down about anything? Given all this. Given the fact you're playing football professionally, mm-hmm. which is all I ever wanted to do, and you've got a few quid in the pocket. But that's the naivety of youth. I, I, I am so much more open-minded now to people's problems in everyday life. So over breakfast, one of the things I said now sounds quite gauche and, and, and naive because it is genuinely um, something that, that disgust is too strong a word. I, I get angry when I see either my profession or generally fans, particularly fans who are coming up now younger, who really have most of their contact with footballers through YouTube or the television and nothing else, maybe don't go to grounds. The idea that we, the public, or we, the, my profession, foist upon all of you they shouldn't have problems. I, I see a lot of people, still really predominant idea, but they're earning eight million a season. Let's not talk about how many games they've got. I could do that when they couldn't. Mm. People have got no idea, even before it reaches a stage of, of problems or loss. Mm. People have got no idea about what, how tough the life of a footballer is. Well, let, let's, let's, let's give this some balance because I don't want to come across completely the wrong way. No, I'm stating I, my point. Yeah, I know, but I am... I am I am very much someone who advocates some resilience and mental strength in people. And I think there is a degree of, if you put yourself out there, 
and you play football and you have all the good things that come with it, mm-hmm. you've got to take the some bad. Mm-hmm. You can't have everything your own way. So I don't mind, even in my job now doing media, some of the messages I get, I mean, you'd, you'd laugh they're that, they're that bad. You know, in terms of, I mean, forget how grammatically incorrect they are. <laughs> but, I mean, how do you spell that many swear words in one sentence? But, you know, it's like some horrendous things. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like, I, I, I'm all right with it because I'm doing a job and I've got thick skin. I know it could be a kid in a room somewhere who's got his own problem, he's insecure. Or I know it's a guy who's probably lonely, drunk, or, mm. you know, I've, I've just got better to accept. Now, mm-hmm. I, I got going back to what you said, yeah, I think there is a lack of understanding sometimes that footballers are humans because mm. they are, to a, to, to a certain um, segment of people, they are role models, superstars, wealthy, famous, and they should do everything right. And the word, but the word I struggle with, it, I think would, could go on that, is they're commodities. Commodities, yeah. I, I, that's what I, yeah. I genuinely resent. Yeah. I, I think all you can do, I think you have responsibility as a footballer when you play, to A, do your best yeah. for the club and that, but, but to just to try and live your life reasonably well, and if you make a mistake along the way, I think generally people forgive you. I think it's drama. I mean, it, it becomes sensationalised in the media these days because football, is cover- football coverage now is it's on every channel. It's 24-7. It wasn't like that even when I... I mean, I didn't have nope. to deal with social media. No. Nope. So I think it's inevitable that you're going to get what you said, people expecting footballers to behave perfectly and judging them badly when they don't. But the reality is footballers do have to take some responsibility for their actions, as I did when I made mistakes. But... I, 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 still t- I still think 99% of them would say to you, I'm, I'm happy in this position and I'll take the crap that comes my way. Well, it, it, none of this is how I intended to begin, as interesting as it's been. So let me go back to what started this addiction. Well, who likes structure? Come on. Yeah, well... <laughs> as we've just I, been yeah, talking no, you, about. You know, but you, you've talked about opening up. I have to open up and say, no, although I'll give off this uh, image of being a... Anarchistic ragamuffin. Mm. Apparently, I do. Apparently, that's built into my DNA. And um, one of the things that uh, I was going to ask you about how you got into this hellhole life was Sunday, thirty first March, nineteen eighty five. Now you've talked about this before, yeah. But I want this next section to be a little bit about Anfield, yeah, in general, and your various debuts, returns. But this is the debut, and I want to know. On that first visit to Anfield for a match against Liverpool, uh, Man United, where did you come from? How did you get there? What was it like? What was the anticipation like? The sounds, the smells, the thing that the things about that day that live with you now, because that is something that unifies all of us. Whether we've played talent, not we, we all adore going to the ground and seeing our team. It's funny you ask because. There's so much about that I remember, which I don't think there's anything else about 1985 I remember. Um, <laughs> yep. yep. My dad took me to the match with one of my brothers, Paul. Um, so I've, I've got three older brothers from my mum's first marriage and then me from my dad's. So my next brother up, because I was from Chester, Chester's a mix, a bit of Liverpool, Everton, Man U. Uh, because it's kind of equidistant mm-hmm. from both. 
Um, he was man U. But he said he still wanted to come, even though we were going to go on the cop. So I was seven or eight, he was about 11. And my dad took us, we got the bus to Chester train station. Mum packed us some sandwiches. Um, I even know what was on them, honestly. I want to know. And the reason I know what's on them is because it was always cheese and onion. And we had cheese and onion every time we went to the match, it was cheese and onion sandwiches. Never changed. Not once. Unbelievable. And even though my dad's not with us now, some of my best memories of my dad. If I make a cheese and onion sandwich now, I think of my dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that people have these little things, but that's mine. So that's why I was thinking, wow, it's weird you ask. In fact, you feel, when I say it, it feels yeah, well. I love that. Um, so we've gone up on the train, me, Paul and my dad. Got there nice and early. I think, I seem to recall standing in a pub somewhere, my dad had a couple of quick pints. Standard. Um, <laughs> we walked round and I'd never, I didn't know what was doing. Yeah. And what, so my dad had obviously worked it out. We were going in the boys' entrance uh, £1.80 to get in. Proper. And he was going round the other side, the adult bit. So we, we, the gates weren't open. That's how early we were. And I remember that because we were one of the first ones on the cop. And I was like, you know, wow, when yeah. you go in and it's like, take your breath away. Because the only ground I'd been to before was Sealand Road, the old Chester Stadium which with all due respect, <laughs> anyway, not quite a few guys from Blake and singing obscene songs, you know, <laughs> on the terraces. Um, so we've got him, my dad, I was a bit panicky at first. because, Well, you, you, you're, sep- at eight, you're, you're separated. You're separated and you kind of, when's he going to come around yeah, that corner? Yeah, luckily I had my brother. How old's Paul? About what 11. So it's, okay. but he, No, but he was all right. He was keeping me, you know, he was, he yeah, was yeah. a tough lad. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't scared of anything. So my dad, I saw my dad, and then we got a little st- centre of the cop on the left. There used to be like a, I call it a wall. It was like a big, yeah, so it, it, you could sit on it. Um, and we sneaked a little pew on there where we, we could sit on and he could stand by the side of us. Oh, and we met two, two lovely ladies, a mother and a daughter, who we became over the next few years really good, well, I say friends, got to know them quite well as you do. And as we were sitting on the wall and the stadium started building, more people were coming over to the wall. It was their regular spot. So you kind of end up having to sneak me on because I was in the place of someone who goes yeah. there every week because we were new. Yeah. So I remember that. But the, I suppose the moment of the players coming out to warm up was the bit where the noise started and I was just transfixed. I mean, the game really, a bit anticlimactic. I, wasn't, I, I would have loved to have listened to the roar mm-hmm. of a goal, but mm-hmm. I got that later. So... It's not spoilt because I did have it at other games. Frank Stoughton got the winner with a header, I think, if mm-hmm. that serves me right in my memory. I left that day desperately just wanting to go back, time and time again. It was one of the best days of my life. And actually, I said to my dad after the game, I'm going to play on that. I'm going to play on Anfield That's one day. That's good words. And you really said that to him? Yeah. And he, said, and he said to me, you will. I mean, at that age... I was already, I was seven or eight, but I was a good little footballer, but I said, that's all I want to do. And then my, my funnily enough, transitioning from, from that game to a, what it created in me and going to many more Liverpool matches. But growing up, loving football, and tr- I, I was never thinking about it as a career. I just had one ambition, which was to play for Liverpool mm-hmm. at Anfield. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't ever think about playing for England. Mm -hmm. Never crossed my mind. Yeah, yeah. I know people think I say that because I'm Liverpool and Liverpool got this thing about, you know, we don't follow England or not. No, it was just... Total focus. Yeah. All I wanted to do was play for Liverpool. That was it. And whatever journey took me there, took me there. But that, that, that stemmed from that. Do you know what? It's, you said something about the memories for people of going to games. I'm not sure that I would have had that drive and focus if I hadn't been the game. Yeah, yeah I believe that completely. I really don't think I would have. Because it just, it get, it just infects you. It takes, get, gets you. over. Yeah. See, this is why we, we occasionally come to this question with people, because those who are descriptive, those who have got emotions and that, it, it's hairs in the back of my neck right now. And it's obviously mm. making me think about going to Pitocchi yeah, 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 in yeah. the 60s. And, well, so, I'll tell you, do you know what? I'll, I'll tell you a little story, actually, because I might forget. And it's really, really relevant. Over the years, played many, many games at Anfield. Went back there, played some games. The last game my dad ever saw me play was at Anfield for Tottenham. We lost late on, they scored a couple late on, we lost 3-0, but we we actually played really well. Should have, could have beaten them. And I had a great game. Mm. Played really well. Played centre mid against Alonso, Stevie, played, we gave him a right good game. And it, I think it was 1-0 when I come off with about 10 minutes to go or something like that. And they gave me standing ovation. Oh, you beauty. With your dad there. Yeah, but obviously I didn't know what was coming after that. Oh, but retrospectively it's uh, Mad. what a thing to, that that's what you left him. Well, ironically, I, I know this is like, I've talked about my dad a lot here, but it wasn't really planned. But when, when he was dying, because he had a few weeks where I could spend time with him, yeah. he was kind of saying to me, well, I've, what more do I need to say? I've <laughs> seen it all. You did everything, you did oh, everything we wanted you, you know, you did, I've seen it all. There's nothing left. It's fine. That's magical, yeah. Danny. What was your dad's name? Danny. And he's, here's to the mm. Danny Murphy. talked about saying to him promising him that day in 1985 that you'd go and play and you talked about whatever road it took well you weren't in all of these but here's the road it did take the Ulevi Stadium in Gothenburg then the Parking Stadium against Bromby Ashton Gate against Bristol City Windsor Park against Linfield Tolka Park against Shelburne <laughs> Ulevall Stadium against Norway Gresty Road I think as a thank you yeah and Ibrox Stadium, where I don't think you went on the pitch, a guest of this interview, a friend of ours, Walter Smith's testimonial. You didn't play in all of those. No, no. But if those, if my research is correct, that means that once you signed for um, Liverpool, it should be that your return and your fulfilling of your promise was on Wednesday, 13th August 1997 against Leicester City. It was indeed. At home, which was... <clears throat> An unfortunate way to begin in terms of the club. But again, the build-up that day, the dressing room, did you touch the sign? Who was there? What did it feel like? Never mind the result for the moment. The result was irrelevant anyway. I promise you, it didn't matter. 
it was excitement. There was a, I knew I wasn't starting, but I felt like I'd get on. I, you know, I, I was just, I knew it could be that day. I was just excited. All day. I didn't have a sleep in the day. Sometimes, you know, you go to the hotel and you have a sleep, couldn't sleep. Even going out for the warm-up and doing your bits on the pitch and the stadium's filling up, honestly, it, it, it's a bit like you're not there. Well, you're slightly out of body. Yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, because you're putting yourself on the cop again. Or I had a season ticket in the Annie Road end and, um, for, for three years with my old man. You're kind of there, but you're, you, you, you've, you're not believing you should be, maybe. It's probably a good way. And I think that's one of the things that takes time, actually, to have the belief and confidence that you deserve to be mm-hmm. warming up with Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman. You know, this is where you're at. I was in Boozers the year, two years before, <laughs> watching games, yeah. jumping off me, off me stool when Robbie's putting headers in last minute against Newcastle. You know, this is, this is the way the world works. So I was absolutely, I, just, I was just ecstatic to get on. And, and I suppose after the game, I didn't feel like, it wasn't like I'd made it, but I did feel, I did feel like a sense of relief that no matter what happened next, if I was to fall off a cliff, metaphorically, with my form, that I'd done it. And then, luckily, my full debut came quite soon after because of a, a bit of, I think there was a flu or a cold, load of, load of lads went down in a couple of days before, so I got a start in a Monday night game against Villa, my full debut. Beat them 3-0 when I think Robbie and Macca were just, since Macca was unbelievable that day. So it, it just started building then. And, and the great thing about that, first time I, I came, even though we lost, was that everyone was there. You know, all, all the family was there. Really? Yeah, I say all, I mean, didn't have a lot, you know, my close family. Um, and then over the years, it's, you know, some of the memories and experiences I had. Do you know, the, the thing is, you, when you're playing for the team you love and winning things, actually, which was even greater, you don't think it's going to end. And I don't think, if someone, I, I wish I had someone saying to me, every time I put on that shirt, and every time I play, play like it's the last one. last one. On for Stig Inga Bjornaby at halftime, yeah. just for anybody listening who hasn't gone back to our, our archives, there were four big interview guests beyond Danny that day, Steve McManaman, Jamie Carragher, Neil Lennon, Emil Heskey, they're all there in our archive. And this section's got two more pieces, uh, Danny, because I think your first return, I think your first return, having left Liverpool, October 2004, with Charlton playing for Alan Kerbishley um, against Rafa Benitez's team, sharing your team strips with Matt Holland, Kevin Lisby, Sean Bartlett, Roman Dahl, um, Franny Jeffers came on, Dean Keeley in goals. Am I right with that being your first time back at Anfield wearing a, an alien strip? Hmm. Yeah, because I just moved. Yeah, so uh, Rafa came in, made his choices. I shouldn't have gone. But I did. What does that mean? That was a horrible day. Ah, that's what I'm asking. Horrible. Felt odd? Felt horrible, yeah, felt awful. It was like, it was like going home, but someone had bought your house. Mm, gosh. And I didn't want to be there in a different, with a different team. The fans gave me a lovely reception, you know, that was nice. That's special. Yeah, but no, it was a horrible day. Do you know what? Actually, I, after leaving Liverpool, I didn't think going back would make me feel like that. I thought I'd be excited, and I, 
if someone had said to me, you'll never have to go back there and play again, I'd have, I'd have taken it. Yeah, I believe that. You know, I, I listen to some place, oh, God, you know, I want to go back and prove a point. Stick it on them, yeah. Ide- ideally, yeah, if you'd have said to me, you're going to score the winner, cup end, fine, I'd take it all day long. <laughs> but it was horrible day. It was, it felt, it just felt bad. I, I, I didn't have much energy. I felt sad. Yeah. I, ju- I just, it was a gloomy, horrible experience. I'm sorry I asked, and I'm sorry I'm now going to No, but it's, it's the honesty it. around it, you know. Having, you know, we, we come out of this section with this last one, but having played, I think, you're pr- probably your penultimate game against Liverpool and won at the Cottage, having set up Clint, Clint Dempsey for the winner, about five or six months later, you go back, I think, for the last time to play against Liverpool for Fulham, um, it's a Martin Joel team against a Kenny Dalglish team. I think um, we beat them. I think you did. Martin scored a long goal very early on. At that time, you probably don't know for sure that that's the last competitive match, no. testimonials aside. But you do, and, and you're signed off to, to Anfield is winning with Fulham. Well, funnily enough, that was a much better day because years had gone by. Mm-hmm. I was comfortable with where I was at and what I'd done I'd got over the Liverpool thing it took a long time but I got over it and the, the journey at Fulham had gone well it, you know, it, was, it was like a second home I felt settled the, the team was good we'd had, we'd had great success under Roy and we went to Liverpool that evening I think it was um, and, and they rested a couple I think Stevie didn't play if I remember correctly which was a bone well, I'll give you the 11 just because it's your memory strange Donny in goals so that already yeah. makes your case. Fabio Aurelio, Sebastian Coates, Martin Kelly, Skirtle, Maxi Rodriguez, Jordan Henderson, Jace. Whatever happened to Jordan Henderson? Jace know. Beering, <laughs> John Joe Shelby, who's, who's doing marvellous things at the moment. Um, Andy Carroll, Dirk Coit on the bench, Jose Enriquez. Yeah, so, so beatable. And, and, but I'll tell you why it was a great memory. Not that we played quite well and it was a good game, rather than getting battered by a great Liverpool side. It, we won the game, but it was... It was as if, I didn't think of it like you've just said to me about being my last game at Anfield. I didn't think of it like that at all. But weirdly, John Arnorisa played that day. And me and him went to the cop after the final whistle and they sang both our names. And it was as if it was a goodbye (laughs) in many ways. Mm -hmm. I think they'd have done it anyway Mm -hmm. if we'd have played a season later. I I don't know if John went back ever or not. But... It was a terrific, it was like an appreciation for what, you know, maybe for the evening, maybe for the years, well, all of it really. It was uh, the trophies, the skill, the thrills, the winners against United, the, the fact they knew you were one of them. It, it, it's a yeah. reason to sing. Yeah, it wasn't like it was planned, expected. Me and John, actually, me and John before the game, I could see him because I gave him a wink. You Never Walk Alone was on when we were on the pit coming out. And me and John were singing it. <laughs> and give him a wink because he's not even a scouser he's not even English but anyway he loves the club and he knew what it was about John to be fair to him and uh, so then at the end pleased with the win yeah I didn't really mean that much that game in terms of the points but we kind of hanging around a bit me and John because we were we knew we were taking it in and that's when the fans did what they did mm. yeah it was, a, it, was a, it was a nice evening that it was really nice for both of us I'm really glad to finish that section on because mm. there's, there's a little warm smile on your face as well yeah. as the warm words you've used. That's lovely to listen to. Mm. I've enjoyed listening to that. Can I, you've done enough to earn a, 
a secret. Go on. I don't think I've ever told you this before. I'm pretty sure I haven't. Day before the Champions League final at Hamden, 2002, Bayer Leverkusen against Real Madrid. Okay. Sitting in the dressing room as part of a group of four or five journalists and Gerard Ullier. And we're interviewing him and it's largely about the next day's game. And your name comes up. I can't remember if I asked him something, but he turned, he was sat on the bench. We were sat, you know, around him in chairs. And he kind of looked both ways and he went, Danny Murphy, he said, I think he's England's Michel Platini. <laughs> I remember this, yeah. I got out. Well, if we got out because he told journalists. I took some sticks for that. Well, that, that wasn't really my purpose no, in asking. It's a compliment. Get the stick out of the way if you want, but that's yeah. unbelievable. He had a huge impact on me, and, and his kind words there were, I think he's talking about my football intelligence rather than, obviously I wasn't as good as Platini. No, never mind no, but he, playing I, I think, it down. No, I've got to play it. That, so. Yeah, he said it, I think he said it. I'm just trying to give it clarity for people who go, oh my God. It's, it's, <laughs> I think he appreciated football intelligence. And that is playing diff- the ability to play different positions, do the job, and, and be clever and intelligent with my creative play. You know, he, 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 he was irrelevant at that comparison. He was a special man because he was a, he was a good football manager, but he was a person who cared about his players. Very, very, to every de- like small details. Without slowing your flow, for those who are listening, does that make him something of a rarity in football? Yeah, because there's two types of caring from a manager's perspective. It's caring about your football and your football development. It's caring about your personality and individual development as a human being. Yeah. Um, and sometimes some managers pretend they care about both and they don't. It's gestured. He cared. Mm-hmm. And you know he cared because he remembered everything. Mm-hmm. Remembered your kid's birthday. That's the he remember what a warm man. You know, he, he was ruthless as well. He had a ruthless side. He, he did, for me something that I can't be ever thankful enough for, which is gave me perspective on what I should be doing and how to be a better footballer in person, which then gave me a career at the club I loved. Because if it wasn't for him, my career at Liverpool would be a, you know, a, a fight in the wind. Specifically, what did he have to teach you then? Well, there was two aspects for me, really, which I think he focused on, which was the importance of looking after myself physically, away from the pitch. So I liked the bevy, mm. like going out. I didn't know how to look after myself properly. Mm. So he educated me on the, on the importance of me being physically right to be the best I could be, mm-hmm. instead of me just relying on talent. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing. And the second thing was about, it was perspective. So it was to understand the opportunity I had, the impact it had on others, as in loved ones, family, mm. On, on legacy, on your memory, mm-hmm. on your own well-being later and looking back and knowing that, you know, it, it gave me perspective on what the opportunity I had was and not thinking everything was just going to keep falling into place. It made me understand that I was in a position very few people get in and made me understand that I have the control to make this special and kept reminding me of it. And what he also did wonderfully well was when I fell into these comfort zones, he used to call them. You know, when you, when you get a bit arrogant and think you're better than you are, he'd pull you back. How? I'll never forget the best example. He said to me, come and see me in the office. I said, okay. What's up? I said, nothing. He said, 
you haven't said good morning for four or five days, you haven't shaved, you're dressing scruffy, you're rushing off after training, don't see you eating with the lads, something's wrong. I want to help you. So I was like, no, I'm all right. So he said, we need to live and, you know, do, get back to you. He said, because if you don't, you can see you slipping and stuff, you'll be out. So I was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> anyway, uh, true to his word, left me out a couple of weeks later. So because I know him so well, I'm what's going He said, I warned you, I warned you. Comfort zone, not training, saying, not looking at, I told you. So he said, now what you got to do, go away. Come back into training like it's your first day. I want you to run around like a lunatic every day. Forget your quality. I want everyone here to, to be a, nobody at this training ground is going to be able to say to me, don't put him back in because you're working that hard and your attitude's that good and you've got your spring, you've got a spring in your step back. He said, or don't do it. It's on you. It's on you. And I would just, I was like, oh, Joe, I wanted to argue with him, but it, I couldn't, he was right. And <laughs> so I left and I did it and I got back in. Five, six, they kept winning. <laughs> but I tell you, he had that ruthless side, but he, he's, got, he's got a wonderful habit, not every time getting it right, but he did it with Stevie. Mm-hmm. We played, you probably know this story, but we played Basel, last group game, Champions League. We had to win to go through. We've not had a good group. Not a problem, should be them really, not that good. 3-0 down half time. 3-0 <laughs> down. And by the way, this is... This is a good side we had then. Dragged Stevie off half time. Dragged him off. Left him out next four or five, four, three or four games. And Stevie after that. Whoosh, but not just dragged him off. Pulled him in. Mm-hmm. Had a chat with Stevie had some things going on. But just knowing when to... And which those. characters you poke and yeah. which characters you, yeah. you look after. Yeah. Uh, which is maybe is a mix of the two. I, I'm somebody who, if, if I'm enjoying a game and I'm at home... I actually go out and press my nose against the screen because I want to be closer. And if I hear things on radio where somebody's talking, I'll just stop and, and, and go as close to radio. There was one with you. You startled the life out of me when he started talking to you about food and weight. We live in an era now of, of literally perma-fit players. Mm. You're still in good nick. You said to me that you've got a natural metabolism. You talked about Ulier's startling mm. attitude to say to you, this is what you've got to do. And, and Well, I'll give you some context. So there was, a definite, there was a definite change in sports science and philosophy from Wenger, Houllier. Yeah. Even at Fergie developed that, didn't he, as well, to understanding food, nutrition and all that to make you better. Right. There was definitely, a, that was changing. Mm-hmm. But more importantly with me was a conversation with Gerard initially was about I'm going to get in the team. Because the last two seasons to get the move, I was playing in a three-man midfield, mm-hmm. free, free to roam, mm-hmm. score goals, make goals, crew. In front of me, old mate Neil Lennon for one of those years, which was a pleasure. What a great guy. So I generally played in central areas of the pitch, whether it be as a 10, an 8, whatever, sometimes holding because I could pass, to affect the game. And he decided that that wasn't going to happen. At Liverpool. Even Roy Evans bought me as a 10 uh, to play behind Michael, probably, you know, that type of role, which I did do on occasion, but not, not didn't become my position. So Hule wasn't obsessed with people's weights. He was obsessed with people being the best they could be, but he understood that some people needed a bit more bulk than others, depending on how they played and what their strengths were. But with me, he said, look, 
you're only going to get in this team if you play right or left midfield in, in the way I want to play. And if you want to play right and left midfield, you've got to be fair. You've got to be able to do the yards because you're, you're helping the fullback and then I want you getting some goals. So it's like, right. I'm, at this point, I was on board to do whatever. Whatever you say, I'll do it. I want to, I want to get in. So the first time we talked about it, I did some extra work, got myself fit. Actually, when he first put me back in the team, I did play as a 10 that day. But generally, when I was back, when he, when he started giving me games the first season, it was wide midfield. Right? Because of Stevie G, Haman, Gary Mack. No, Gary Mack was a bit later. Okay. But then it was, Redders was there. Okay. Um, you know, it's good quality. But mm-hmm. it, I think it was more, he didn't mind playing me there, but not as in filling in if they were in. I could play there loads of times, but not... He didn't see me that as to play every week, where you're going to play. Left it's, or right. Yeah. So that season, started playing some games and then fit and strong. Anyway, next season, second season, we were in a treble. Roughly played 60-odd games. I started about 40, 41, 40, whatever. Scored 10 goals in all competitions, probably 15 assists, 14 assists, something like that, right? That, that, that was roughly about... Not bad. More than happy with that at the time. I mean... Looking back, could have done a lot more, really, thinking about it. But me and Stevie, funnily enough, a little caveat to that. Me and Stevie had a bet that year who'd get the most goals. I didn't realise how many he was going to go on to get in years further ahead. But Did he not pip you in the final? No, last day of the season. Okay. I got it, it was 10 each we got. Yeah. I scored one on the last day of the season to save myself a few grand. <laughs> Thank God. Um, where was I? Yeah, so <laughs> we win the treble. Yeah. And this is the story you probably heard. We win the treble... Fantastic, amazing year, like just incredible. We we have a celebratory dinner, booze up basically. I've had a few, and Julio pulls me. I'm thinking, do you a new contract here? <laughs> <laughs> you know when you do the old yeah. Rory when he's just hit a birdie wall. The cackle is going. Come over here. So I was like, on. anyway, I want you to come in. A, I want you to come in pre-season early. So what? He said, you need to lose more weight. I mean. I was like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, you need to be fitter, even fitter. He said, how many games you played? I said, 40-odd. He said, how many have we played? I said, 60-odd. He said, well, do you know how many times I'm about to leave you out and I don't want to? I said, right. And then he said at the end, he said, um, obviously knew the answer. He said, uh, <laughs> have you played for England yet? <laughs> I went, no, but I should have. And he went, yeah, but you haven't. So I went, when do you want me in? Yeah, yeah. He said, two weeks before everyone else. I said, I'll be there. Wow. Got there. Graft. Yeah. Graft, graft. Alone, not in the well, Caribbean. There was, was a few of us. Okay. I had a couple weeks off and then went back. Yeah. But was graft. Still two that you've sacrificed because yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, no, probably by then you know he's, he's right or it's worthwhile at least. Everything he said so far had worked. Yeah, yeah. Every promise he'd made, he backed up. You buy it. So who was I to, turned up, got fit, fitter, missed one game that season, got player of the year, I think. Got in England squad in the September. Stayed in that for two years, two and a half years, whatever it was. Didn't play that much, obviously, but still got in it because of him. Now, I had to have the desire, intelligence to take the message on board and do it. Because it's hard work, you know. I didn't rebel against him or think I was better than his advice. I did <laughs> it. So I deserve some credit for that. But if it wasn't for him, I think I'd have never reached the level I did. 